And yes. what kind of love stories are possible if your uh, if your partner is Jesus Christ? This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals, with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. This is the Gospel of Musical Theater. I'm Peter Elliott in Vancouver. And I'm Nathan LaRude in Portland. And we're continuing our series on uh, the musicals of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, we began uh, the first episode looking at Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And today we move to their second musical on biblical themes. Uh, and strangely, one that we haven't covered in the, I mean, you would have thought. You would have thought. musical theater. <laughs> yeah, this would be like our ur text. I mean, so maybe here's one way that we might begin. Peter, do you even like this musical? I don't particularly like this musical. I don't um, either. Yeah, no, I don't either. No. So we're talking about Jesus Christ Superstar, obviously. And let me just do a little background and then we'll get into some of the issues. And I mean, I don't like it, but every time I listen to it, I'm compelled by it. And I, that kind I, of pisses I, yes. me off. No, I agree. I was trying to, maybe this is one of the things we want to talk about. Like, I keep trying to like this musical because in so many ways, it is so interesting. And it, I mean, more to the point of, I mean, like what we're trying to do, I think, on this show, which is use this particular cultural artifact, the, the musical theater genre, um, to think about theological themes, which is exactly in some ways, I think, what Rice and Lloyd Webber are trying to do. So it, it is solidly in our bailiwick. And yet I just can't, I like it. I respect it. I'm interested by it. I'm compelled by it. But I do not love it. And yeah. I would love to. I would love to know why. Like I've been trying to figure out. Like what is it about this this material that keeps me at a a weird kind of emotional distance where I have a hard. Because I, I know people who I love and respect, theologians, many of them, who love this musical. Like for whom it is a it is a heart text. It is a a deeply a deeply important piece of I want to say their religious life. Right. Yeah, like this absolutely. is a piece of how they understand what it means to be a Christian, who Jesus is, what Jesus is about. So I have a lot of respect for its impact on secular people but on Christians too and yet yeah, I just yeah. can't get there and I would love to I would love to have a better answer for why So we're, we're, uh, it, it comes from 1970, and its real antecedents, I think, are uh, uh, Tommy, the rock opera by The Who, um, which came out, uh, let me just check my, 1969, so a year before, Hair, which probably had made it to England, to London's West End, uh, premiered on Broadway in 1967. So we had this new kind of emerging phenomenon of the rock musical. Uh, in some ways, Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat sought to do that. Um, uh, Weber and Rice are quite young. I think yeah. you, uh, 19, 19, early 20, 20s. Yeah. Uh, nobody, no producer wanted to touch this thing. They pitched, uh, we're going to do a musical on Jesus Christ. Um, and everybody turned them down flat. Like, worst idea I've ever heard, said one producer. Like, 
how can you be so stupid? And and let's time travel back into late 60s, early 70s, fairly controversial around religion in those yeah. years. God is Dead had already been on Time magazine. Churches were experimenting with things like rock masses, bringing guitars. Vatican II mm-hmm. had happened. So in Roman Catholic churches... The mass was in English, or the language of the people, in in our case, uh, in English. And, and lots of folk guitars. And lots of folk guitars. Church of England, somewhat stultified as it used to be. <laughs> Sorry, that was irreverent. You, um, you used, used to, to be. be. <laughs> Sorry, and we love we love our uh, Anglican symbols. We we love you, Church of England. We do. Um, and youth culture. I mean, yeah. uh, my generation, baby boomers, iconoclastically exploding all sorts of institutional norms. Uh, We have the pill, which uh, generates the sexual revolution in all sorts of ways. The very beginnings of gay revolution, the very beginnings of feminism. And so... Well, and the the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement in America, I I, I guess that's probably a little different across the pond. But my sense is even even in London, youth culture, anti-war culture... Uh, a different kind of attentiveness to race, although that's one of the things I want to flag. How does this show think about yes. race? Um, how do, I mean, more to the point, how do two, you know, blonde, upper-middle-class British boys uh, reveal their blind spots, we might say, when it comes to race? I think one of the interviews I saw, both Lloyd Webber and Rice originally conceived of Jesus Christ Superstar as being post-racial. We don't uh, our generation is not hung up on race. That's what he. That's what twenty-three-year-old Andrew Lloyd Webber said when he was accused of being anti-Semitic. Right? The show has been since its inception has been a problem in the way that it treats Judaism, particularly. And and they understood that, and also kind of questions around the the racial identity of many of the actors involved in productions as being a post-racial. You know, yeah. this is all ridiculous. These 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 accusations of being anti-Semitic or racist are ridiculous because we don't see race. That's basically, I think, how they. Um, and, and some of that feels very generational to me, right? That this is a generation yes. that believed itself to be moving beyond race as a divisive issue. Now, looking at the distance of 50 years now, we can say, oh my gosh, you know, there's there's a lot of blind spots there. But there there is a um, there is a kind of confidence, I think, in a new kind of future in which the, the ways in which people have been separated and divided by categories are no longer holding. And I think that's an important piece of the, um, the context of this piece. Yeah. Absolutely. And it does make you wonder why in so many productions for so long, Jesus is always played by a white boy, Judas yeah. by and a And Judas boy. as a black actor. Yeah. Originally by Ben Vereen, which I would have ben loved Vereen. to. Ben Vereen. I know. I know. Anyway, back to the origin story. So nobody wanted to produce a thing. So they decided to put out a uh, uh, an album set. Like it was a boxed album set, uh, uh, LPs kind of like operas came in. I remember just kind of one personal story about this. It was, I think, 1971. So it was brand new, very controversial because uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene were seen to be having some kind of intimate relationship. And we'll talk about that uh, in just a few minutes. But at my home parish in southern Ontario, the rector who had a stereo in his office like a sound system but in a cabinet brought it down into the parish hall oh my gosh and the young people sat and we listened to jesus christ superstar it was actually seen as a kind of radical thing to do 
Uh, I mean, I was 1970. I was 16. Um, so it was sort of the youth group there. And the uh, this this is the memory that I have quite distinctly. The last piece on the on the, the song list is called John 1941. And it's just this orchestral, it's actually quite beautiful, sort of symphonic sounding without a resurrection, sort of right after the crucifixion of Jesus. They laid his body in the tomb. And that's how JC Superstar ends. The rector, a lovely guy who was in his, you know, clergy shirt and suit, somehow thought that that was a cue that he was supposed to read John 1941 at the end. (laughs) So he got up out of his, you know, really bad church gymnasium chair and stood very reverently in front of the stereo system and read, you know, and when it was all done, they took Jesus' body and laid it in a tomb. And that was sort of sort of it. And it, so it had this kind of religious bookends. But uh-huh. That's my... Well, and it's interesting because he was, he was treating it almost liturgically in that sense, yeah. right? Like that this yeah. is something that you might do in church and that there would be then a kind of a clergy role then to kind of like yes. button in the thing, almost as if it was a, whole, a Holy Week liturgy. Yeah. 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 I mean, one of the, just because we're both Anglicans... One of the most famous and most terrible Anglican oratorios is written by John Stainer called The Crucifixion. And church musicians, uh, the joke is people ask, one church musician asks another, what do you think of Stainer's crucifixion? And the answer always is, I'm entirely in favor of it. Um, <laughs> because it is a very schlocky piece of Victoria, high Victoriana. Which interestingly, we discovered last time, Andrew Lloyd Webber quite likes. Right, he's, um, he's got a he's got a soft spot for Victorian architecture, certainly. But I think also just the the baroqueness of high Victorian music and art and culture. The, I think I mean the, I think a piece of it is the kitschiness of it is what appeals to him. My friends, I am Lord indeed. Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord in bitter anguish and Oh, Jesus. 
and I think we got a fair bit of kitschiness. Oh my in gosh, JC yes. Superstar, right? Yeah. I, I think I think to a certain point, deliberately so. I mean, I think a piece of what these two, you know, these this nineteen year old and this twenty whatever he Tim Rice is twenty one, twenty two year old. I mean, they're a little bit thumbing their noses. I think at a, a world that takes this story so seriously, and one of the ways I think that they maybe successfully, maybe unsuccessfully. Um, send up religion a little bit or gently and lovingly um, satirize it is with a certain kind of deliberate kitschiness. And that's actually one of the things that I, I almost, I, I kind of like about J.C. Super. I think about, especially about Herod's song, right? Which is the most sort of like pastiche uh, jokey sort of thing. I mean, I think in the original production, Herod was conceived as kind of a drag queen, which is, that's its own kind of thing. Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, but there right. but there is a kind of I mean in the in the same way that Joseph and the Amazing Technical Dreamcoat is also using pastiche as a way of I mean maybe putting a little bit of ironic distance between very serious biblical source text and then a sense of lightness and fun that the that the the, the creators are having with this and and to a certain degree I think that's that's strategic um, that's deliberate on their part yeah yeah Rice was quoted Tim Rice was quoted as saying it happens that we don't see Christ as God, but simply the right man at the right time in the right place. We, yeah. Jesus simply was misunderstood and um, not the right guy at the right time. And so we've got this sort of kitschy pastiche church oratorio within the idiom of rock music, mm-hmm. uh, uh, kind of a clumsy rock music in my view, and that's we can talk more about. Uh, it's certainly not the who. No, um, it's not the who at all. These guys are uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's classical roots show through. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, rock rock opera through the lens of Puccini, if you like, or or maybe yeah. maybe not in nothing quite that <laughs> exalted either. But yeah, th- th- this is not. I mean, there, musically, I think there is some really interesting stuff happening. I mean, there's a, there's songs in five four time. There's songs in seven eight time. I mean, it's it's a. I don't know if I would say musically sophisticated, but certainly musically interesting in a way that um, traditional rock music tends to be a little more, you know, a little more conventional, I suppose, American pop. Um, and Lloyd Webber is doing something that's a little a little more art songy, a little more, I don't know, what the postmodern? I'm not quite sure. I'm not a musicologist. People who know music history will be able to, to frame that better. But my sense is that what he's doing is a little outside of traditional rock music. Yeah. Anyway, so the album surprisingly becomes an international phenomenon. It uh, it sells like crazy. It sells so well that by 1971, um, New York producers uh, uh, Robert Stigwood brings it to Broadway, um, produces it. Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice hate the original Broadway production. It's nominated for a bunch of Tony Awards. It wins nothing. And it was kind uh, of critically panned too, wasn't it? Critically the critics hated it. Yeah, terrible. And ran seven hundred performances, which is kind of Broadway, astounding. Yeah, which is kind of astounding. And in London, a similar production ran for over eight years, uh, and it held the uh, record for the longest running West End musical. Before it was overtaken by cats, <laughs> cats <destroyed laughs> it begins Jesus the begins the Lloyd Webber lockdown on the West End, I suppose we might say, and and on Broadway too. I mean, Cats and Phantom kind of locked down Broadway for a long time in terms of longest running shows. Yeah. Then, just a couple of years later, 1973, Norman Jewison, who's Canadian, by the way, which which we must say, 
I have to say that. We and have to say you, that. They, they take away our, our cards if we, if we don't say it. <laughs> we don't. When we're, yeah. yeah. He made it into a film version. He was fresh off making uh, his version of Fiddler on the Roof, a movie I quite love. Yeah, uh, I, I love I love Norman Jewison. I mean, I think Moonstruck uh-huh. is one of the greatest films one of the of great all time. American films. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's just fabulous. But so he did. Uh, uh, he made a, a movie of Jesus Christ Superstar that you and I agree. It's is pretty good. One of the best representation. I yeah. agree. I think it's a good film. I don't love. I don't love Jesus Christ Superstar. I do. I do like that movie an awful lot. I think it's a really good film. So the Norman Jewison film, fantastic in so many ways. Partly because it sets it up as a passion play. And those of you who've seen it will know exactly what we're talking about. Actors arrive on a bus somewhere in Israel, kind of a desert sort of scene. They set up the, they set up a stage. They put on the play. And when the play is over, they get back in the bus and they, they go home. So it again has this sort of world that gets created through Jesus Christ Superstar. Which isn't, it's not like, um, you know, when Zeffirelli did the Jesus of Nazareth's miniseries, trying to recreate the Holy Land, or what I like to think of as, you know, uh, the tourism version of the life of Jesus. I know you're just back from, from Holy Land and stuff, but it, it does set it up as a, as a theater piece, really, in the desert, and is pretty successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think deliberately, you know, not trying to do a Bible costumes version, right? But kind of setting it in a in a in a vaguely contemporary, with some weird kind of ana- sort of anachronistic nods. I have a lot of questions about the choices around how the Sanhedrin get costumed in that film yes. with with their very S and M BDSM leather chains and, and strange headpieces. It's it's very sexy. It's also very strange. Um, but it's but very I think strange. trying to you know trying to do something that feels very contemporary, right? And, and I think that really is what Jesus Christ Superstar is trying to. I mean, even just I mean the title gives it away, right? Setting the story of Jesus in something like uh, a contemporary celebrity obsessed the the world that we just described, right? The kind of the world of the early seventies, youth culture, um, yeah. where yeah. the establishment is you know is a kind of act you know like they're right there watching everything. I think I and mean, this is trying to make Jesus the story of Jesus to be a very contemporary story. And at that level, I think that is what every passion play. That's what you know. That's what Bach is trying to do with his oratorios. That's what every that's what the passion plays. Are. I mean, you know, I, I, the, maybe not quite as sort of a contemporary spin on stuff. Um, but but there's a long history of taking the the stories in the Gospels of Christ's passion and bringing them into the present day and seeing what resonance they have. And in that sense, what Lloyd Webber and Rice are doing is, you know, has a, has a, long, a long track record. Um, and I yeah. think is, is, a, is a pretty successful version of a contemporary passion play. Yep. Uh, Pope Paul VI. Yeah, um, loved it. Norman Jewison took it to him, and uh, he said, according to Norman Jewison, a Canadian, uh, Mr. Jewison, not only do I appreciate your beautiful rock opera film, I believe it will bring more people around the world to Christianity than anything ever has before. Oh, anything ever has before. <laughs> was you, that Paul the Sixth. was that was that Paul the Sixth? Yeah, or was that Norman Jewison remembering? Well, Paul who the knows? Sixth? Yeah, um, right. Who knows? But still, I mean, and, and I, I mean, who knows, right? Like, I would love to, I, I don't know if anybody's ever done a study on like, <laughs> does Jesus Christ Superstar work as evangelical material? I mean, has it brought people to the faith? I would love to know. My sense is atheists and agnostics really love this stuff. And that's yeah. good enough for me. 
right? A way yeah. to, uh, to kind of make this material uh, interesting, palatable, resonant for people that don't identify as Christians. I think that's worth doing. I think that's actually sure. a really worthwhile project. Uh, so whether it brings people to Christianity or not is I don't really care that much. I love that it does bring this story places where it wouldn't otherwise go. Yeah. And in its early history, uh, every production of it was picketed by evangelical Christians. Yeah. I think they, I think evangelical, at least hardcore evangelical Christians are still not really on board with Jesus Christ Superstar, which we can, yeah. we can talk about the reasons why that may or may not be. Also, you know, a lot of uh, Jewish defamation groups are also still very yes. much not on board with Jesus Christ Superstar, which we and should we probably will also talk, talk about, about that. Yeah. 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 But uh, just to finish up the kind of production history this this thing, this this rock opera, oratorio, whatever bit of kitsch musical theater has gone around the world. Like several engagements on Broadway. Uh, the, the one of the most recent ones being the Stratford Shakespearean Festival from Ontario uh, in a production that was really really very good. But uh, in Japan, in the Netherlands, in Germany, like literally around the world. Community theater groups, yeah. uh, high school groups, church groups, uh, like this thing has just been performed everywhere, pretty much by everybody. And it was, I think, the year before the pandemic or before NBC, National Broadcasting Corporation in the U.S., who do a live musical, did Jesus Christ Superstar with John Legend playing uh, Jesus uh uh, one of the first times in that I'm aware of, although there's probably lots of others, that an African-American played Jesus, because usually it's the white boy is Jesus, right. the black boy is Judas. And I think that's hugely problematic. Um, so it's ubiquitous. It's in the culture. Uh, I think it's been generally accepted by churches, probably not the most extreme evangelical ones. Um, and, you know, here we are. So... One of the things you and I talked about was when you kind of analyze it, get into it, as we've both been doing over the last few days in preparation for this, it kind of maps on to the classic structure of a Rodgers and Hammerstein yeah. musical in some ways. In some ways, doesn't that? The first act may be more than the second act. I think, you know, there, there, Rice is very, um, tracks the biblical story. I mean, almost beep. I mean, it, and it's a, it's sort of an amalgamation. It's not, uh, following any one gospel in particular, sort of a, a mishmash of the four canonical gospels. I think, especially in the second act, much more tied to John's text, maybe, than the than the synoptic texts, which I, <laughs> we can talk about that, whether that was the... But the first act, I think, really does uh, make a Broadway musical out of the story of Jesus, right? You've got, you've, it begins with a classic I Want song. Judas is established as your protagonist right off the bat. Um, and he sings, I think, one of the best songs in the piece, Heaven on Their Mind, which at one level lays out in, in uh, it both kind of establishes the world very quickly, right? Here's the situation that we're coming into in the middle, which is here are, I mean, two best friends who are at odds. Uh, we, 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 we meet Judas right away as like, I'm, I'm Jesus's right-hand guy, and I've got some major concerns about what's going on in his movement. And we also get, I mean, it's, it's an I want song, right? Like, we get a real clear sense of what's driving this guy. He is established for us as a kind of a classical musical theater protagonist. Um, and yep. it's, a, it's a good I want song. I think it's actually a really successful I want song. Listen, Jesus, I don't like what I see. And they'll hurt you when they find they're wrong 
some other way And they'll hurt you if they think you've lied Nazareth, your famous son, should have stayed a great unknown Like his father carving wood, he'd have made good Tables, chairs and oaken chest would have suited Jesus best He'd have caused nobody harm, no one alive Jesus, do you care for your race? Don't you see we must keep in our place? We are occupied. Have you forgotten how put down we are? I am frightened by the crowd, for we are getting much too loud. And they'll crush us if we go too far. I think it's a great idea, and I think it's one of the strongest pieces in 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 the show. I mean, I agree. The lyrics, and as much as I find most of Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical derivative, uh, I mean, the big tune from Jesus Christ Superstar is a direct lift from Richard Strauss. Uh, it's in Death and Transfiguration. It also is in Strauss's four last songs. But whatever, you know, bum ba da dee dee. It's a great tune. It is. Uh, anybody can use it. But 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 Rice's lyrics like and I it, as you say it's a classic I want song. He tells you exactly what the purpose of the show is. You know, mm-hmm. if you strip away the myth from the man, you'll soon where we all be. Right? Yeah. Uh, it's seeking to strip away the myth of Jesus Christ in some ways from the man, uh, and it, they're really much more focused. Uh, Weber and Rice on the human person of Jesus and to show Jesus as, you know, fully human. Yeah. And that that is a problem that I, in the, in the Christology, if, if you can call it that, that they're seeking to, to promote here. It's kind of like Jesus got carried away by the enthusiasm of the crowd and began to uh, inhale. Yeah, began to believe idea. his own press. Yeah, I think yeah. that's Judas's warning, right? Like, hey, yeah. don't forget who you are. They're calling you the Messiah. You are not the Messiah. You're not God. You're a human being. And and you said, like, you know, things would have been better if you just stayed a carpenter in Nazareth. Like, you could have done some good making oak chests and things like that, right? You got you got caught up in this celebrity culture. I mean, so at one level, right, there's the sort of the theological uh, you know, kind of political story that's being told here. Because Judas also says, like, you know, have, have you forgotten that we're oppressed? Like, they're going to kill you, and a right. bunch of us are going to get in trouble. So some of it's like, uh, don't mess with the system too much, buddy. I think that's the political level of the story. Judas is the one saying, um, you know, we're, we're under threat, and you're causing trouble. And, th- and I, I think that's our setup for why he's eventually going to side with the Sanhedrin in this thing, right? That there is a, there's a protective quality that Judas is worried about. But I think there's, a, there's also the layer at which, and, and, and we'll see this more, I think, once Mary Magdalene and enters the story. This is kind of a bromance slash romance. Judas has lost his friend or feels as though he is losing. His friend, we might say maybe more than a friend. I mean, that's a, you know, that's putting a a queer, a queer read on this thing, which I don't know how fair that is. But I'm, I, one of the things I do want to think about both theologically and uh, dramatically is the ways in which the love story functions in this thing and yes. what kind of love stories are possible if your uh, if your partner is Jesus Christ. I actually think that's a really interesting theological question. I mean, Mary Magdalene is going to famously give voice to that. I don't know how to love him, which I think is a, 
a deeply theological song. That's putting the cart before the horse. Here we get Judas's version of that, right? Like, I thought we were on the same page in terms of what we were doing, and now I see you doing this thing, and I am terrified of it. I'm terrified of it for you. I'm terrified of it for our people. And I'm terrified of it in terms of our relationship and what that means about what, what has happened between the two of us. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. so yeah. here's the point of an I want song, right, is to kind of figure out a character's motivation. I mean, wh- what do you think Judas wants? I mean, he wants to pull, yeah. I guess, pull Jesus back, kind of get him back from the celebrities, wants to wants to uh, take the movement in a different direction, maybe, has concerns about where the movement is going. I think he also wants his friend back. I mean, at one level, I think what I, what I want to, if we're going to identify with Judas as a human character, which I think is what Lloyd Webber and Rice are asking us to do, um, this is a guy who's, had, who's just had his heart broken. And I think it's important yes. for us to experience Judas in that way. Well, and I think the the, the end lyric of Heaven on Their Minds, uh, listen, Jesus, to the warning I give, please remember that I want us to live. Is that yeah. us? Is that him and him? But it's sad to see all your our chances weakening with every hour. All your followers are blind. Too much heaven on their minds. It was beautiful, but now it's sour. So, yeah, I think I think you're right, Nathan. I think it is... He wants his friend back. Maybe he wants his lover back. I don't, yeah. uh, the queering of this, I don't think you have to make too many moves on the uh, no, on the chessboard here yeah. to see certainly a bromance. And does Mary Magdalene kind of function as the third uh, the, to make the triangle to complexify things. I don't know. Yeah. Well, maybe this is a but, good time to move to, to Mary, because I think she's the other really significant, yeah. right? Like Jesus, Jesus, Mary, and Judas are the, is the love triangle in this thing. I think they're the three most yeah. interesting characters in the piece. Um, she said, I mean, I, one of the ways that she kind of identifies herself, I mean, she's going to come in, I think, in the next couple of songs, you know, when she's wiping is, you know, try not to get hairy, try not to whatever, I'm going to wipe your Everything's head with all right. Everything's, Everything's all right. Fine. It's this very, like, hippy-dippy, like, hey, don't worry so much, Betty. Like, um, but what she says is, like, um, I, I've only, um, I, my life has been changed in the last couple of days. I mean, I think, I think the way that we're meant to understand Mary is she's a newcomer to this thing. She has just been drawn into this movement. Um, she's, she's experienced her life being transformed very recently, and she's, and she's trying to figure out what all that means. But as far as Judas is, is concerned, she's the interloper, right? Like she's, you know, she's yes. kind of come into this movement that was, you know, it's like Jesus and I have been hanging out for years, sweetheart. You've come in, you've fallen in love with him. <laughs> he seems to be responding to your ointment and the ways you wipe his face. I mean, okay. But like, you know, he, <laughs> he and I have, like, we're, 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 the, we're the ride or die here, right? Like we're going to be together yeah. long after you and your kind. And then there's a lot of sort of dismissive stuff around her role as a sex worker. Maybe this is a good time to talk about the, the ways in which the sex worker trope gets put onto Mary Magdalene in ways that are, right? Like she's not, the Bible does not, she's not a prostitute in the Bible. We think historically she was very much not a prostitute. That's a later tradition. Lloyd Webber and, and Rice are using that tradition in ways that I think are both interesting and also problematic, problematic in terms of what it, like the ways in which that characterizes sex workers, right? Mary Magdalene kind of, she's kind of the hooker with a heart of gold, right? Like I've, I've had so many men before in very many ways. He's just one more. I, I'm used to being in control of relationships because I use my body in this kind of way. I mean, in some ways, this is the stereotype of the prostitute who falls in love for the first time. And I, I don't love, I don't love that treatment of sex workers as if like, you know, like they've never experienced love. That's why they act the way they do. I think that's, that, that's a very, uh, young man's view of sex workers 
But yeah. um, that that is kind of the character that's being being presented to us, right? A fallen woman who has experienced, you know, like if, if, at the level of character, right? She's experienced her life being she's she's um, she's experienced a man interacting with her, looking at her, loving her in a way that she has never experienced before. It completely uh, takes her world apart. She's trying to put her world yeah. back together. And so, it, I mean, yes, I don't love the, what, what that says about sex workers, but at the at the level of character, I think what an interesting. Um, what an interesting setup for a song, like I Don't Know How to Love Him, right? This woman who has experienced her, her world completely changed and is trying to figure out now, what does it mean to have fallen in love with God? I don't know how to church i think has always said like nope that cannot be understood sexually you cannot have a sexual thing for jesus he is unavailable to you in this particular way (laughs) and yet we're gonna play with all of the eroticism and all of the romanticism and all of your longing to be seen and touched and felt women queer people right we're gonna we're gonna tap into all of that stuff and then tell you you can't have it i mean it's i'm 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 going down a a, you know that's that's more than the song is doing but part of why this song resonates for me is because it, it plays with that um, very toxic, very heady, and very enticing stew of falling in love with a savior who is also a human man. Um, and I think that actually is a really interesting theological conundrum. I think so, too. And just to carry on with your, you can yeah, love, love him, but not sexually. But then we, I mean, in Eucharistic worship, 
Uh, we taste. We get his we body. Eat. I know. It's we get so his sexual. Body. Yeah. It is very sexual. It's very and I think sexual. what Weber, just to go back in terms of the history of it, I think, and this was not this trope that maybe Jesus was sexually active in the same way that young people, that, that, that sexual uh, intimacy was sort of coming out of the closet in the, in the late 1960s, 1970s. I mean, we're a long way away from, uh, uh, from I Love Lucy, where she and Ricky had to have separate beds in terms of North American culture. Uh, sex was now everywhere. Sex is selling Pepsi. Uh, everybody's the, 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 the demographics of it is the, the world is young. The biggest population is young. Uh, in 1970, the baby boom is somewhere between 14 and 25. So this is the height of, uh, sexual energy. So I think, uh, uh, Weber and Rice, okay, we're going to be iconoclastic about Jesus Christ as a rock star. Of course, he's going to be sexually active. Well, is he? I mean, I, I think they're being very careful to not to not present this as a sexual relationship. And at one level, that's interest. That's an interesting dramatic choice. Maybe right. uh, some of that I read as a, maybe an overly respectful view of scripture, wanting to make sure that they're not doing anything that is going to get them banned. Although they end up right, so it's like, well, you you know, you already you're, you're getting banned. You may as well go all the way with this thing. Are they or aren't they? Um, I think right. Mary's experience is, no, we are not, right? We have not right. consummated this thing. Um, and yet, like, what an, I mean, in some ways, like, what a much more interesting thing to play with if, if there is sexuality that is active. I mean, certainly, I guess there is obviously sexuality that's active in this thing. Yes. She is erotically compelled by him. I think Judas yes. is too. I think everybody yes. is. And some of this is celebrity, right? Like, a friend yes. of mine you know, talked about John Legend, play, right? Like, John Legend actually embodies this. She's, she's a lesbian. She's like, you know, but when, if, like, John Legend comes that close to me in, a, in an auditorium, I will do anything for him, right? I mean, so yes. part of the part of this appeal of a celebrity is there is a sexualized nature to that. Absolutely. Um, and it, it, it's not the same thing as I want to have sex with you, but it is I am erotically, comp- I come alive in your presence. I mean, that's, that's charisma. And certainly, I mean, you know, it's like, I don't think it's possible to understand the Jesus phenomenon historically without thinking this guy must have had an incredible kind of charisma, whatever else you believe about Son of God, right? Like, obviously this guy had charisma. Presumably that was experienced physically, if we're going to, you know, kind of be very careful around it. But but the show is very careful around keeping him, I mean, we might say theologically keeping him sinless, because the way that Christianity has historically understood sex is that is the marker of sin. So Jesus yeah. cannot possibly be a sexual creature because we're committed to understanding him as a creature without sin. Now, I, there's a piece who wants to take a step aside and say, like, what I really want to talk about there is the equation of sex and sin. I think that's the problem yes. here. So if we pull that aside and we don't necessarily assume that being a sexual creature is, a sin, is to be a sinful creature, then it opens up, I think, all kinds of different possibilities for understanding and incarnate embodied, enfleshed, erotic, sexually alive manifestation of God, which is, I think, a much more interesting way of understanding Jesus. But I understand that the tradition is tricky that way. Very tricky. And isn't it interesting, given what you've said, that what Weber and Rice choose to for a song is the classic 1940s Rodgers and Hammerstein trope the conditional love song. Yeah. I mean, it's right up there with people will say we're in love. Yeah. Uh, uh, if I loved you, I don't know how to love you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how to love him. 
Uh, it, it's it's a classic conditional love song, and I think to your point, it it both paces the period uh, of sexual freedom, but wanting to keep him a little bit chaste. Mm-hmm. Well, and a little mysterious, a little unavailable. A little I mean, that, that that's a, a much more interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it also raises the the theological question of how are we supposed to love Jesus? Yeah. How, how is erotic love involved in our love of God? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we've been bereft of the insights of the mystics, the the, the mystics, John of the Cross, yeah. others Teresa have Babala, a yeah. Teresa of Avila fantasize about Jesus, about his body, about God with an erotic charge yeah. un, uh, uh, unrepentantly. Um, and it is a tradition. And also always, though, very carefully, right? I mean, like, kind yeah. of at, in, I mean, I think Mary is actually operating out of the, one way we could read, I don't know how to love him, is it's the song of a mystic, right? Like, I am physically, erotically, romantically, spiritually compelled by this guy. And yet, I am still being very careful to make sure yes. that I I stay on the um, the non-theologically heretical side of this thing. It can never be consummated. The minute it's consummated, I have crossed a line with this thing. And that's actually, yeah. I mean, I, I see that in Teresa. I see that in John of the Cross, right? Like, they're having these, I mean, deeply sexy, erotic dreams about following Jesus through the night as a lover. And yet, like, you also get the sense that they're a little bit terrified of their own sexuality because the minute it... The minute Jesus responds in that key, the whole house of cards falls apart in a certain kind of way. Now, some of that's the power of the tradition, right? Like, Teresa's writing this stuff to her confessors, and she knows, right? Like, if I actually tell them, like, I'm having an orgasm because Jesus is, like, you know, coming into my body in this particular way, she knows she's going to be branded as a heretic, and she would be. She'd be burned at the stake. Like, I mean, so some of this is self-protectiveness, right? Like, we, we, we know the church won't let us get away with this thing, so we're very careful. I think also psychologically, I mean, there's something there's something re- interesting to me here about like the nature of longing, right? Like, and that's one we could read. I don't want. I don't. I don't know how to love him. I am longing for him, and yet I also instinctively somehow know that the minute that longing gets responded to, it changes it, and I don't want to lose the yeah. um, the excitement, the thrill, the frustration of that longing. Well, and and she sings that. Uh... Uh, but if I, but if I said I loved him, I'd be lost. I'd be frightened. Yeah. I, I couldn't cope. cope. I couldn't cope. I, I just couldn't, couldn't cope. cope. <laughs> Which I mean, like what a what a like I right like I couldn't cope either. If Jesus was like, hey Nathan, I want to like be your boyfriend. Like whoa no, like I can't I cannot cope with that. Right. So yeah, I mean like like Mary, I don't actually want a sexual relationship right. with Jesus. Right. Like I I I don't know what that you means. couldn't cope. I could not cope. Um, yeah. And yet I love to kind of. Pl- play with it, tease it, think about what that might be. You know, it's like, because that's my, I mean, I think for, for, for all of us as human beings, like that's one of the keys that our longing f- is expressed in, is the erotic longing to be touched, yeah. to touch. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's complicated, it's heady, it's tricky, but I don't, I don't know that we actually want that with God. No. And then just uh, zooming back out of that, the, the, the big problem, I think, uh, is is giving Mary Magdalene the the label, the trope of the yeah. sex worker, as you said earlier. Uh, the 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 it's a, st- a fairly clear trajectory from that kind of interpretation to women carrying sexuality, yeah. uh, therefore carrying sin, 
and a betrayal of what seems to be in most recent scholarship that I find quite compelling, a much more vibrant uh, leadership role for right. Mary Magdalene within right. within the apostles. Uh, she is really the first apostle. But here, uh, she's a complex character, but I think she's but in a sexual way. Yep. She's she's her job is to wipe his face. She she is not a leader of, of the movement. And yeah, and I'm I'm disappointed by that too. I was I was listening to a uh, another podcast on on Jesus Christ Superstar that talked about a, a show that had split. I think it was because it was staged in a high school and they wanted to give more roles to girls, which is of course right always what you're trying to do. So they split the Mary Magdalene character into three Marys. Um, they Mary of Bethany, Mary the mother of Jesus, and then Mary Magdalene. So I think. Um, try not to get harder, try not to have but that was Mary. Everything's the, all right. Everything's yeah. all right. Was I think the that, I think that song was given to Mary the mother, and then I don't know how to love him was given to Mary Magdalene, and then whatever she sings in the second act, I forget I forget what it is, was given to Mary of Bethany, which I mean is a weird dramatic choice. But there is yeah. something interesting to me because I mean one of my problems, one of my criticisms of Jesus Christ Superstar is it does telescope what we know historically and what we know from the scripture, like the significant role that many women had in Jesus's yes. life and the leadership role that they clearly exercised in early Christian ministry and negates and erases all of that and reduces it to one sex worker who has an erotic thing for him. I yeah. mean, like at one level, yeah. I understand why that, I understand that's the world of the seventies, right? That's conventional Christianity, whatever. But I mean, there's a much more interesting story that can be told about Jesus and women exactly. than Jesus Christ Superstar tells. And I think that's some of the reason that I'm not satisfied with it ultimately, uh, because of the perpetuation of that trope. No matter the 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 woman as 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 sex worker, Mary Magdalene as a prostitute, old, boring, wrong. You yeah. know, so we're over that. We don't need to do that anymore. We've been doing that for a long time, and it's a. I mean, anytime an actress as as great as Sarah Bareilles wants to get up and sing, I don't know how to love him. I am sure. there for it. I love that song. I love the role. But I agree with you. that That's not a way of telling the Jesus story that yeah. I have any interest in perpetuating. And then we have the just another uh, another part is the the Romans and the, and the Jews. Yeah. Um, uh, so Pilate gets a great song, actually. Uh, uh, his dream, although I think in the Bible it's, it's Claudia's his dream. dream. Yeah, it's his wife's dream. But you know, um, okay. Whatever. But whatever. I dreamed I met a Galilean, a most amazing man. He had that look you very rarely find, the haunting, hunted kind. I asked him to say what had happened, how it all began. I asked again, he never said a word, as if he hadn't heard. And next, the room was full of wild and angry men. They seemed to hate this man They fell on him and then They disappeared again Then I saw Thousands of millions Crying for this man And then I heard them mentioning my name And leaving me the blame He's sort of seen as a conflicted 
a conflicted man. Then Herod, who is this sort of, is he Roman? Is he Jewish? He's a little bit of each, but he is the, uh, it's the comedy song, right? right. It, it's been played by drag queens. In the movie, it was played famously by Zero Mostel's son. Oh, is um, that who that is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. Huh. Uh, and been played, you know, by comedic actors in the in the John Legend NBC. Yeah. Alice Cooper. It was Alice Cooper. I know. I mean, come on. <laughs> Who actually, I didn't um, think was that good in the role. But I mean, it's terrible. It's great stunt casting, though. It was terrible. Yeah. Um, but in some ways, it gets the most sacrilegious, if you want to put it that way. So if you want the Christ, yes, the great Jesus Christ, prove to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. If you do that for me, then I'll let you go free. Come on, King of the Jews. What is it that you have got that puts you where you are? Oh, ho, ho. I am waiting. Yes, I'm a captive fan. I'm dying to be shown that you are not just any man. So if you are the Christ, yes, the great Jesus Christ, feed my household with this bread. You can do it on your head. Uh, or has something gone wrong? Jesus, why do you take so long? Ah, uh, come on, King of the Jews! Hey, aren't you scared of me, Christ? Mr. Wonderful Christ! Uh, you're a joke! You're not the Lord! You are nothing but a fraud! Take him away! He's got nothing to say! King of the, get out, King of the, oh, get out, you King of the Jews. Get, get out of here, you, you, get out of here, you, get, get out of my life. Uh, if you're the Christ, the great Jesus Christ, prove to me that I'm no fool. Walk, walk across, across my swimming pool. I mean, pool. he also gets all the great lines. It's I, I think it's one of the best songs <laughs> in the piece. But you're right. It, it, it's a little, uh, I mean, very tongue-in-cheek, very pastiche But all, I mean, also Trace is a really interesting, I mean, I don't want to read too much into this song. It's a little bit of a novelty piece. But by the end of the thing, it's, you know, like, get out of my life. I, I, you know, like, I want nothing to do with you. So beginning with this, I mean, Harry becomes, I think, another one of our avatars for different people and how they see Jesus, right? Like, attracted by the celebrity, wants to see... Uh, and this feels very consistent with how Herod is depicted in the Gospels, actually. Like, I don't think Lloyd Webber and Rice are doing anything that's not in Scripture. Right. Um, Herod yeah. is compelled by the the celebrity culture. He wants to see Jesus perform a miracle. And when Jesus refuses to, you know, be his stooge, he turns on him. Um, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's not a bad musical depiction of the story between Herod and Jesus that Scripture tells. But problematically, I think, sends him back to the Sanhedrin. Or is it the Pharisees? Back to what you were mentioning sooner. Usually depicted as, as you said in the in the film, these sort of bare-chested, 
uh, gym bunnies, you know, who are <laughs> on the ramparts with voices uh, that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, scale the bottom of the of the score. Yeah. Well, and um, the top too, because Annis is a is a is a exactly. countertenor role. Yeah. Yeah. I I have so many questions about. I mean, I think what what Lloyd Webber and Rice are trying to do with the Pharisees is, I mean, sort of like they're the antagonists, right? I, actually, I think in right. one of the interviews I read, they understand them to be the establishment, right? So in some ways, yeah. what Lloyd Webber and Rice, who are, you know, 19 and 21, they're, you know, Jesus is, Jesus and Jesus' world are the kids. These are the hippies. These are the, you know, the, the free lovers, the Vietnam War protesters, the ones who no longer see race, so no longer see gender, everybody sleeping with everybody else. And then there's these authorities that are always watching, who are also a part of the world. I mean, like, it's important that everybody in this story is Jewish, right? The, Everybody is under occupation. You've got the kids who are starting to get restless under occupation. You've got, I mean, one way that we could read this is kind of a generation gap. You've got their slightly older group of leaders who are in collusion with the occupation, understand that their power is very much uh, tentative. It's very much based on, you know, they're not putting, sticking their heads up too high, not creating any trouble for Rome. So at that level, right, Jesus, of course, is a threat because, like, he's threatening the survival of their religion. I mean, we, you know, Rome was pretty famous for quashing religious movements and let Judaism survive. So, right, like, the Pharisees have a certain, I mean, it, at one one level, I think Lloyd Webber and Rice are, are kind of giving us what is potentially a very interesting, maybe even sympathetic portrait of the Pharisees. But then the way that the music and the characterization works is so stock villainry, you know, yes. with the yeah. with the de- you can almost see them twirling their mustaches. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I just find that so... I mean, different productions have done interesting things with the Pharisees. I remember a production where they're sort of like, you know, bankers in a in a conference room, right? Like they're up in some high-rise. I thought, oh, that, that's interesting. Um, that's, that, that's, that's different than black cloaks, stupid headpieces, and, just, you know, kind of almost classic like Darth Vader-like villains. Yeah. Because but regardless if, of the way you depict them, ultimately, J.C. Superstar sees... Jews, the Jewish religious establishment, as being responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And in that, they are following the Gospel of John, right? I mean, they are not, you know, if if we're going to accuse Jesus Christ Superstar of being anti-Semitic, which it does, I mean, you know, some of, one of the ways that we can characterize the music and the characterizations, particularly of of Annas and Caiaphas, is it is kind of trafficking in some very uncomfortable Jewish stereotypes. And the root of those things is the Gospel of John, so some of this, like, you know, it's like, I can't fault Lloyd Webber and Rice too much for it. I can fault Christianity. We are responsible for most of this stuff. And yes, they are being entirely uncritical in the way that they treat that material. And that, I think, right. is, worth, is worth saying, right? Like, and, you know, and then became very defensive when they were accused of it, right? Like, and that, Lloyd Webber even said, like, our manager is Jewish. Like, you know, he's done more for us than anybody else. <laughs> Some Norman... of my best friends are Jewish. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, the, the blind spots here are, like, glaring. And, you know, the, the two upper middle class Anglican white boys. I mean, of course, right? Like, they, you know, have no understanding don't seem to have any, and are more to the point, seem unwilling to hear the ways in which at 19 and 21, as these two upper-class Anglican boys, they are trafficking in stereotypes that are not only deeply hurtful, but are the, like, are the root of deep violence, you know? Like, yes. people have died as a, six million people died as a result of these stereotypes, and, I mean, and a bunch of other things right. on top of them, but, like, this is not, like, this is not something to be laughed off or right. apologized for. Like, this is actually deeply deeply concerning and yeah. christianity is the you know like we're the we're the we're the ones with blood on our hands in this yeah. in this way 
Yeah. And it's, it's why I get uncomfortable, I think, that um, it, it, the, the depiction of, of Jewish religious establishment at the time of Jesus, making them completely responsible in J.C. Superstar, growing out of John's gospel, sure, and the Mary Magdalene trope. Uh, I just kind of, this isn't, this isn't a story I want to tell. Yeah. It isn't a story I want to preach about. And it frankly isn't the Jesus Christ who I believe in yeah. um, or yeah. the gospel story. I, I understand the history, but, but I, I'm, so in, I'm so invested maybe in my own postmodern way of wanting to clear up some of this stuff and, and hear it fresh. And I think that's what they were trying to do. I think I do they were trying yeah, to, to make it fresh. But in doing that, they fucked it up. And well, yeah. maybe that maybe we do that in every attempt. Yeah, maybe. Um, I, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I wrestle with that. Like, you know, is there can you find the gospel in Jesus Christ Superstar? I mean, as you and I understand it, right? Is there is there good news in the story or is it such a, a late kind of early postmodern cynical celebrity culture take on this thing with no, you know, that ends with the crucifixion and then this as you say this kind of uh, beautiful kind of symphonic uh, ambiguous moment, like is there any is there anything that is recognizably good news for I mean for Christians or even not for for people right does this does this give us anything preachable or is it just trafficking in a bunch of really bad Christian takes on on a very problematic but I mean I think you and I would both say also a deeply powerful and redemptive story about how human violence works and how God responds to human violence and sin. Does any of that find its way into Jesus Christ Superstar? I don't think so. And I think, you know, the big tune at the end, the Judas's 11 o'clock number, it's classic. He's killed himself, but he comes back in usually lame of some sort, silver or gold. <laughs> for a good um, disco number, yeah. <laughs> for a big disco number. And the refrain, you know, uh, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Who are you? What have you sacrificed? Like, after telling this story, uh, Judas, speaking really, I guess, in some ways for everybody, mm-hmm. is saying, so what? So what? I mean, it, so what? So so what's the big deal here? What has happened? And uh, this kind of fixation with pop culture, which we've talked about, if you had chosen another time, you could have been as successful as the Beatles, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have been Elton John, you know. Uh, you could be Andrew Lloyd Webber, I guess. Uh, sorry, that's going too <laughs> oh, far. Oh, boy, that just gave me a chill. I, no, I mean, I think that's right, right? I mean, there is a, I, I call it cynicism, but it's it's deeper than cynicism. I mean, there's, there's a really interesting and very honest question here, right? Like, I mean, if could this movement have succeeded in a different way, in a more recognizably powerful and on one level it's like well i mean you know christianity has succeeded as a world political force of great cultural influence great military power lots of people have died you know so so it's like at one level it's like mm, i you know i mean there is a complicated legacy of success in the jesus story right i mean we we talk about this all the time right like you you've got this small band of followers and a thousand years later you have a worldwide you know institution with a military many militaries attached to it like what like this is this is a fucked up way of understanding what jesus of nazareth was all about world domination no i don't think so 
So right. Lloyd Webber and Rice are kind of translating that into, you know, could you have been as big as the Beatles? Could you have had the career of an Andrew Lloyd Webber and made millions of dollars? I mean, like, it's interesting to think about Andrew Lloyd Webber at 21 looking at the story of Jesus of Nazareth and actually, I think, saying, I don't want to do that. I want to make money. Now, that's, yeah. that's unfair. I don't know him. I, I cannot speak to the state of his soul. But there is something so depressing to me about two young guys looking at the legacy of a guy who preached nonviolence, a way of being in the world that was deliberately opposed to celebrity. I mean, Jesus even says it in the thing, right? Like, if you understood what power and glory meant, you know, none of you get it. None of you get it. They say, right. you know, their, their, their Jesus does have that, that bit of wisdom. And it's almost like the show is saying, like, yeah, you fucked it up. Like, you should have yeah. you should have been famous. Now, maybe I'm being unfair to the show. I don't know. But that's how I kind of read. When I think about Andrew Lloyd Webber and where his career went, I think, what would have happened if he had paid a little more attention to actually what the show doesn't really do, which is record anything that Jesus actually really says in the Gospels. I mean, none of his, exactly. none of his teaching exactly. makes it into this thing. There's a little echo of the Beatitudes, you know, like, blessed are, blessed are you who are... I mean, like, there's a tiny echo of that. But almost yeah. none of... I mean, the, of the person I actually identify as my savior, almost none of that, I feel like, makes it into this show. Exactly. And it's why, for me, I, I'm much more a Godspell Christian than a Jesus Christ superstar. Yeah. Because Godspell, taking its roots from the Ma Gospel of Matthew, spends most of its time on the teaching of Jesus, rather than what Jesus Christ Superstar is, is kind of a rock opera version of Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. Like, we're just going to go to the 40 lashes, to the goriness of the crucifixion, without the bigger context of, of the teaching, of the notion of servanthood, of self-giving love. All those right. sorts of things are pretty absent from the lyric sheet yep, here. Yep. Well, it's a and passion if, play. It's a passion play. And if that's your understanding of Jesus, I mean, like in some ways, like this is, as I see it, like this is one of, I think, the tensions in Christianity historically, but certainly today. If you understand Jesus as basically a puppet for God to kill, right? His only meaning then is his blood covers my sins or some version of that, right? His death has got to be the focus. So it's got to be an atonement focused Christianity. It's got to be, I am a sinner. Somehow his death on the cross redeems me. I mean, like you and I both know, like that is uh, long and venerable. And we would say, I think both deeply problematic way of deeply understanding. But I mean, like yeah. that's what this, that's what this thing is, is trafficking in popular Christianity, which really does see Jesus as a, as a kind of, I mean, empties an empty signifier that everybody projects stuff on who just has to die, just has to go through the ritual of some kind of sacrificial death. And I am so not interested in that kind of a Christianity. Like, I just don't find that interesting. And, I, and it, I, to your point, it frustrates me that I do respond to stuff in this show, um, yeah. but it, it really stays there. It stays at the level of atonement theology. And I want something much more interesting in my Jesus than just a, an actor dying on a cross.
in the big in the in the eleven o'clock number, Jesus Christ Superstar. Did you mean to die like that? Was it a mistake? Did you know that your messy death would be a record breaker? Yeah. <laughs> Judas sings. Judas sort of screams this at the audience. Like the end of it, I mean it usually produced over the top, uh like a rock like a rock concert, you know, strobe lights and smoke and and dancing girls and the whole thing. I think uh and, and it's a great moment in the theater you know it's a, oh my god that's great uh, isn't that wonderful what they're doing on the stage but when you step back and think about it i think just to your point all we've looked at here is one very thin slice of an interpretation of the jesus story just the atoning the atoning savior we've missed some more of the complexity and for me i guess now that we've talked about it that's the reason why I don't love Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I although, sing along to the whole thing. Yeah, it's very singable. It's very compelling. And and that's where... So there's a piece of me that if I'm going to operate on the other side of my mouth and try to make a pitch for this thing. So Good. if we if we begin where we, where we began with that I Want song, right? That basically one way of understanding this material is it's the story about a guy who loses his best friend. So at the end of the thing, then, if the spectacle of Jesus Christ Superstar, that big number where Jesus, Judas has already killed himself, but he comes back from the dead. I mean, if there's a resurrection in this thing, it's Judas. That is interesting to me. Yeah. Judas actually does get resurrected in Jesus Christ Superstar, and he comes back. So I don't, I don't know. I'm just to I, sing a song, of yeah, course. To, and to sing. I, I think the best bop in the show, right? Although, as you say, it's so yeah. cynical. But if that is understood as. Um, this is the this is where the um the spurned boyfriend makes his case. Yeah. I mean that's I don't know that that's a salvific story. I don't even know that it's a gospel story, but it is an interesting dramatic story to me about um about betrayal. I I I don't know what kind of a resurrection that is, but I'm interested in thinking about Jesus Christ Superstar not so much as Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice's pop infused materialistic takedown of the Jesus story but maybe as a uh, as a spurned boyfriend saying who are yeah. you like uh, you know I lost you you became the world's messiah but I miss the time when it was just you and me hanging out by the seashore catching fish and talking shit like what happened to our our friendship our love affair I mean that I, there, there is something deeply moving to me about yeah about I don't know the story of about a, a, a lost love um, well, and it it does redeem Judas, who I don't think we do a very good job in in Christian churches of talking about Judas, other than just putting him in the villain's role of the betrayer. We don't really give motivation beyond maybe jealousy or political intrigue, um, and best friend or spurned lover. It doesn't really matter. A heartbroken man whose friend who he loved has gone in a way that he thinks is totally wrong yeah yeah have you ever yeah. do you know colum toy beans the the last testament of mary do you know that text no. I, i'm thinking about it, it's it's an amazing text i mean colum toy bean is kind of doing with mary the mother of mary the mother of jesus what i in some ways what i think Andrew weber and tim rice are doing with judas in jesus christ superstar which is telling a uh, a very different i mean in some ways the last testament of mary is a a mother grieving her son and feeling betrayed by the movement that his death right like basically saying like you know no i'm i i lost my child 
no, no movement, no savior complex, no messiah can bring him back to me. And all of that is bullshit. I miss my son. It's a very dark, but a very honest depiction of what it's like to lose a child. And in some ways, like that's that's maybe kind of what I think we're what we're exploring here for Judas, right? Like maybe this isn't trying to tell the Jesus story so much as trying to tell the Judas story. Judas is the character who gets uh, who gets resurrected, if you like, in this kind of dark, interesting way. Um, but there is a, a there's a deep kind of humanism, maybe a deep kind of sense of the power of human emotion, kind of recentering that as opposed to anything theological, soteriological, anything spiritual, maybe about a spiritualized Jesus. And Judas is saying, no, he was my friend. He was my lover. I tried to save him and I ended up being uh, I ended up killing myself because damned I couldn't for all time. damned for all time. Like what the fuck? Yeah. And there right. is, I don't yeah. know. There's something very powerful to me in that kind of a story. It's different than the, obviously it's different than the story the gospels are telling. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, it's not an atypical story from the period of the antihero, yeah. right? We're not going to look for sunshine. We're not looking for curly uh, singing. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Everything's going my way by the time you hit 1970. I mean, in, in Hair, for example, which I think is its antecedent, it's, it's, the, it's the character who is a draft dodger, who is the hero of, of the show. And there's this, in, in that time period, always looking to redeem or to put forward the antihero as opposed to the, the designated hero. It was kind of a youth culture. It was a countercultural, like deeply countercultural move. And so I think putting Judas in that role was a way to play with that trope and and frankly to give Judas the 11 o'clock number which yeah. he never gets which in he a never passion gets. play and there is something yeah there's something well and, and so thinking about it culturally right like what is that about in the 70s right what why why, why the folk I think a piece of that I'm gonna guess a piece of that is like let's not let's not talk about uh, successful, powerful institutions without taking a really hard look at the carnage underneath the success story. And at that level, if that's the story that Jesus Christ Superstar is trying to tell, right? That like this guy's <laughs> this guy's worldwide impact, if you like, came on the backs of people like Judas Iscariot, who hung themselves yeah. and are now like what in quotes damned for all time. Like let's tell that poor story old too. Yeah. I mean, yeah, at one level, poor old Judas. Yeah. But there is, I don't know, culturally, certainly, there's something interesting to me about that. And maybe even theologically. Like, let's not just tell story. let's not just tell success stories. There are other passion stories at work in the story of Jesus. And one of them is, I mean, I, I guess Jesus Christ Superstar is kind of Judas's passion. That's yeah, an interesting, that's, a good way to put it. that's an interesting story to tell, yeah. isn't it? I don't, I don't know that it's a salvific yeah. story. I wonder about that. But it is an interesting human it's, story. And I think, you know, had they been older... Had they had a little more, a little more wisdom, a little more uh, life experience, maybe they would have told it better. Maybe, but I guess for a nineteen and a twenty-two year old, not bad to put this not in front bad. of us. And and there's some bops in it, so you know. And if the audience response is anything, if the ubiquitousness of this show being produced over and over and over and over again, it's clearly found a chord somewhere. Beyond just the the catchy tunes, but yeah. they are catchy tunes. No, I think tunes. that's right. I think that's right for for a, for a number of people. I mean, we, we've we've when we've taught this show, I, I, I remember hearing this from people in our class, right? Like people who grew up in Sunday school, right? Like the Jesus story was just kind of right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in the background, and I remember a woman saying, like, this was this was the show that brought this story to life for me. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, that is actually, I mean, kind of with you, like this particular way of telling the Jesus story, I'm not that interested in. But if this is a piece of how, um, for people who have grown up in cultural Christianity or, you know, estranged from cultural Christianity, just kind of seeing the Jesus story as a background without much interest, if this is a way that it can come to life, can be seen in a different kind of way, I mean, that is worth doing, I think. I think that's worth doing. Sounds like you're kind of with Paul VI. Maybe I am. Maybe Paul VI and I have more in common than I, than I had realized, <laughs> and, and I am I'm willing to defend this thing. I, 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 am, I, I don't know. As, as we began this year, right? Like, I don't love this show. I have a lot of um, issues with it. And I do find something really interesting and compelling about it. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'm learning. I'm learning to love it. I don't know how to love it. I don't know why. It I don't me. know how. I've to been changed. Love I've, I'm really it. changed. I've I've had so many shows before in very many ways. It's just one more. <laughs> um, could it bring me down? Should I scream and shout? Should I speak of love? Let my feelings out. I never thought I'd come to this. What's it? What's it all about, Peter? What's it all about? <laughs> if the show I just can't cope. said it, I just me, can't cope. <laughs> I couldn't cope. But I, I, yeah, I find something very compelling in it. Until next time, I think it's Evita that we look at next. <laughs> oh boy, okay. The Gospel of Musical Theatre is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org podcasts. See you next time.